what I want to do tonight, I, I shouldn't, this is a terrible way to begin a Bible study, but I'm going to say, don't judge the study based on tonight's message, because I always, I do not like the first lesson of every time you go through a book, because you've got to lay foundations, and the foundations are, to me, not as exciting as just diving into the Word, but these are important things for you to, to understand and to see as we go through the book so that you can look for them and you can recognize them. And so one of the things that you have there is going to be an outline. And that outline that's on the first page is also in the back of my book. If you want my book on Revelation, see me and I'll get you one of those as well. Uh, that would also be just a good thing to that's going to kind of follow through this, but there's going to be a lot more in here than that we even have in my book. Um, the point of Revelation we'll get to later. Right now I, I want to kind of show you that there is something called a chiastic order in Revelation. Not only in Revelation, but it's really all in the Bible. It's, it's everywhere. And so... Like I said, there's foundations I have to lay here first. Number one is Polycarp. If you've heard that name, this guy, when he was burned at the stake, he said, 80 and six years I've served my Lord. I'm not about to turn my back on him now. Light the flames. I mean, this is the kind of guy we're talking about. And he was a disciple of John, the very John that wrote this book of Revelation. Now, Polycarp said that John wrote this book when he was in prison under the rule of Domitian. Now, that is more important than what you may know firsthand here right off of the bat, because that gives a time frame for it. And how we interpret Revelation, it can go one way or a completely different way based on when this book was written. So his own disciple said it was under the reign of Domitian. That puts him, Domitian died around 96 AD. This would be at the time that the temple has already been destroyed. If it was earlier, you will find some that are going to say it was from somewhere from 65, around 65 AD, before the temple destruction. If that's what you believe, and we'll talk more about this coming up, you'll find a lot of people who are going to interpret that Revelation was fulfilled in 70 A.D. Now you may go, oh wow, I've never heard that. It is a very widespread belief that's out there. It's called a preterist view. And I guarantee you, you know people who believe the preterist view. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, but in a nutshell, the preterist view is there in some ways to recognize that the church has replaced Israel. And that in 70 AD, it was judgment on Israel, in a sense. So we'll talk more about that as we go, but just know how important it is as far as the timing of when this book was written uh, or not. So what happened is, after the temple was destroyed, there were many Jews that were afraid of Rome and, and the, the powers that be. And so they kind of began to talk secretively, uh, even more so. And we see in Acts chapter 8, we even see back then there was persecution. And the church was, was being kind of spread out, scattered throughout the world. But sometimes they will refer to Rome as Babylon. Now, I'm not saying that the Babylon that we're going to read about is Rome. However, I'm not saying it's not either. I just don't want you to get too many preconceived notions at this time. We'll deal with that when we get there. But <clears throat> Revelation is such a unique book in the New Testament. It, there is, it's, well, absolutely unique. There is no other book like it in the New Testament. And the reason being is because it is very much like an Old Testament book. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets would hear directly from God. They would have a vision. They would have something, and they would write it down. Otherwise, in the New Testament, it was like eyewitness accounts giving their... Not to say it wasn't inspired. I do believe it was. But what I'm saying is Revelation is not like that. Where I've heard in my 
hours and hours of research in this. I've heard people saying, well, John was kind of taking his, you know, little twist on this. And so he's saying it because then this is how the, the Jews at that time would understand it. No, John has no part of this outside of writing it down. John's personality, his understanding of Jewish culture, his understanding of Gentile culture, none of that is playing into what John is writing. This is the inspired vision of God, and he is simply relaying it the way it is. It does not have to do with John's personality and characteristics. We hear that a lot, though, when you talk about Luke being a doctor and, you know, Matthew, a tax collector, and these different kinds of things. And, you know, uh, one of them will focus on Jesus being the Son of Man, and the other one is going to focus on him being the Son of God. Okay, that's not revelation. It is unique, all of New Testament. Now, <clears throat> my book on Revelation, it's called Revelation, All of God's Word Revealed. You, the reason I titled it that was because when I wrote this book, I was blown away how there's really nothing in there that wasn't written already. And I thought, we are talking about Revelation as, no, nobody can understand Revelation. We don't touch that book. And yet, at least 90% of it, I can show you in the Old Testament, if not more. And it's like, so if you can't understand Revelation, how can you understand the Old Testament? Now, with that said, there's going to be over 500 quotes or allusions to the Old Testament, but not really quotations, and we'll, we'll kind of touch on that later. So, like I said, just a very unique book. We'll, we'll get to that as we go on, but just know that that's a foundation that we're starting with. Um, I'm going to show you a couple of things here with examples in the Old Testament to show you what we're going to see sometimes here in the book of Revelation. In Leviticus 10.2, it says, Fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. And we're talking here uh, about Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons. And it says they died before the Lord. What I want you to see is that's in chapter 10. Then you have chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. And then chapter 16 comes, says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. It's like, wait a minute, why didn't you just tell me, okay, Aaron died, now God tells Moses this. But instead, we've got all these chapters in between kind of separating it. What's going on here? It's almost like it's an insertion. This happens a lot in Scripture. We see here in Numbers 25, where the Midianites, they were told to harass the Midianites and attack them, for they harassed you with their schemes by which they seduced you in the manner of Peor, and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister who was killed in the day of the plague because of Peor. That's Numbers 25. Then you go back and you read other things in chapter 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and then you get to chapter 31, and we see, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites. Same kind of thing. It's almost like chapters 26 through 30 are inserted in the middle of a story. That's the way the book of Revelation is going to be in some cases. There's these insertions, and you're on a track, and then you just have to leave for a little bit, and you're going to come back and get on track after you you know, have a little side trip. I'll point those out to you when we get there, but that's what you're going to see. The other thing is, is this chiastic structure. A big word that simply means a pattern that's in there. Now, there's a couple of different patterns. Now, Revelation is not the only book that has a chiastic pattern. The whole Bible is filled with chiastic structures. Different books of the Bible are filled with chiastic structures. Revelation has a ton of it, though. What is a chiastic structure? Well, it's this, where you can have a theme, theme number one, and it goes one, two, three, and then it kind of works backwards, three, two, one. I'll, I'll make more sense of this in a minute, but this is going to be everywhere in the book of Revelation. It's going to help you understand some things. But it's like coming from both directions, meeting in the center, and that center is a focal point. 
you're going to see that chapter 12 of Revelation seems to be a focal point of the book. We'll talk more about it when we get to chapter 12. There's also parallelisms where you have theme 1, 2, and 3, and then it goes theme 1 again. It, it, it talks about the same theme and in the same order as it did, you know, ABC, ABC, rather than ABC, CBA. Now, tonight, I need to just kind of want to run down a little bit of this chiastic order that you're going to see. And I'm not showing you all of them. We would be here many nights just to show you all the chiastic structures. But I'm just going to show you a little bit of it tonight, okay? As an example, with this chiastic structure, theme number one, Revelation 1.1 says, To show his servants things which must shortly take place. Now you go to the end of the book, because like I said, it's going to work backwards, pointing to a, a, a theme. Way ahead in Revelation chapter 22, verse 6, it says, to show his servants the things which must, which must shortly take place. Basically saying the same thing, top and bottom there. I tried to color code it for you. The next one here, the little brownish one, in chapter 1, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. You go to Revelation 22, 8, I heard and saw, I fell down to worship. He falls down, uh, almost as dead there as well. Uh, the third one, chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is he who reads and hears the words of this prophecy. Chapter 22, verse 18, everyone who hears the words of this prophecy. You're going to see these parallels. Now, that may not seem like much just with this little bit, but believe me, it's everywhere and it goes on. So here again, uh, Revelation 1.1 is the same, but Revelation 2.3, he rebukes the promises to those who overcome. End promises. You're going to see to those who overcome, first of all, you, you've, you've done all these bad things, but those who overcome, and these overcomers, by the way, are going to be a key in chapter 12. Those who overcome are then, we see, in chapter 21, verse 22, uh, or chapter 21 uh, through verses 22, verse 5, is the fulfillment of the promises that he makes to those overcomers. Those overcomers now receive it. The third theme here in chapter 4 through chapter 6, we have the sealed judgments that are going to be opened. You go to chapter 17, we see actual judgments coming to an end. So it's the beginning and then the end. In green, Revelation 7, a reward for those who are overcomers, the good. The seven trumpets go, and there are seven thunders that are heard. And we see the same thing in Revelation 14, a reward for those who are good. And we see seven vile judgments for the bad people being poured out. In the blue here, the theme five is we have two witnesses. In chapter 11, and then when we get into chapter 12 and 13, you have two beasts that are coming out called by the dragon. And then the focal point is going to be there in around chapter 12, like I said. So that's the kind of thing, looking at the whole book of Revelation, just giving you a broad spectrum of it. If we just look at chapters 1 and 22, just those two alone... You can have things like this. Uh, the shortly take place we've looked at, verse 17, falling dead at his feet, we looked at that. Uh, blessed is he who hears the words of this prophecy. Everyone who hears the words of this prophecy in chapter 22, verse 18. So we saw that then in green here in the middle, um, comparing chapter 1 to 22, you have the prophecy of the second coming of Jesus. And in chapter 22, you have him fulfilling and him actually coming. Okay, like I said, I'm going to go through this fast because I just want you to see how this works, not memorize this or anything like that. Um, if you look at this one here, just chapters 2 and 3, there's a chiastic structure. I will give, you, uh, give to eat from the tree of life in Revelation 2. In chapter 22, we see the tree of life again. In chapter 3, you get to write on him a new name, a promise of that happening. Chapter 22... They get a new, their, the name is on their foreheads. Chapter 3, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, is basically the name written on them. 
And in chapter 21, the holy city, New Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. So you're kind of seeing that same order, ABC, CBA. Chapters 4 through 6 has something similar here. The Lord sits on the throne in holiness. But in chapter 17, we see it's the harlot that's going to sit on a throne. And you're going to see the devil is going to mimic everything God does. Everything. Even the resurrection. Okay, We see the two witnesses will rise, but we also see the beast that had been slain looked as if he had been dead. Right? But he will come back. I mean, there's these constant parallels that it's pointing us to. Um, in chapter 5, who can open the scrolls or open the seal? And in chapter 18, we see that the destruction of Babylon, what happens because Yeshua does come and opens up the scroll, that judgment upon Babylon will come, and we see the results of it. Chapter 5, the lamb is worshipped because he can open the seals. In chapter 19, the Lord is worshipped because of Babylon, because of the result of those, what was read on the seals. Um, chapter 6, the first four seals will bring judgment on the earth. Chapter 19, the advent of Jesus and basically completing the judgment. And then chapter 6 and 20, the saints cry out for justice. And in chapter 20, the saints get their justice and they get their reward at the final judgment. Chapter 7 through 10, kind of the same type of thing here. Uh, there's 144,000, and when we get to that, that's going to be really deep and amazing. But we see them also in chapter 14. In chapter 8 and verse 15, comparing them, you're preparing for the seven trumpets and the, uh, that all happen within the seventh seal. And in chapter 15, you're preparing for the seven vials. Chapter uh, 8 and 16, judgments on the earth with military-like warfare, all kinds of strange things happening there. And the same thing in chapter 16. Military warfare judgments take place. Then in chapter 10 and 16, you have the seven thunders, uh, as well as the vile judgments in chapter 16. Almost done with these here. Uh, chapter 7, we could just look. I've kind of shown you little bits, bites. Chapters you know, 2 and 3 and, and these. I can even go into a chapter and you can see these. Just narrowing it down. I mean, it is that orderly. <coughs> In chapter 7, verse 1, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. In chapter 14, verse 1, then I looked, behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Uh, ch chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, then I saw, chapter 14, then I looked, uh, having the seal of a living God. And it says, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And it says down there in chapter 7, verses, uh, verse 3, till we have sealed the servants of our gods on their foreheads. So you can kind of see the same connection here with 7 and 14. Now, continuing in chapter 7, verse 4 says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And in chapter 14, 1, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion with him, 144,000, having his father's name. We kind of looked at that. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 7, he cries out. In chapter 14, they're singing. In chapter 7, verse 2, there are four angels. And in chapter 14, verse 3, there's four living creatures. Chapter 7, verse 4, hearing the number of those who were sealed. In chapter 14, verse 2, I heard... The sound of the harpist playing and all of that. The voice of many waters. So little things like that that you can see. I've got some more here uh, in verse 9. Uh, you can see them color-coded. A great multitude. Then there's the 144,000 in green standing before the throne. Versus standing on Mount Zion. In blue, they were clothed with white robes. And it says, these are the ones who were not defiled with women. They are without fault before the throne of God. Well, what are the white robes? The righteous acts of the saints, faultness, blamelessness. And so you see that there. Uh, in purple, in chapter 7, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, 
Chapter 3, they sing a new song before the throne. When you go look at the song, it's a song of deliverance and salvation. And that's what they were doing in chapter 7, um, as you kind of read on. So you get the idea here, that there's all these comparisons. Uh, verse 14, I said to him, Sir, you know... So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 14, verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So you see those who are brought out of the great tribulation, those who are pure in chapter 7, in chapter 14. Uh, same kind of thing here that we're seeing time and time again. Like I said, I'm not going to go through all of these, but I just want you to see, you can even take a chapter and compare chapter 7 and chapter 14 and see all these similar themes that are there. So each one of these themes that I have in different colors, what you're going to see is it won't be word for word. It's going to be just that, a theme, uh, something that's parallel to it, a comparison like I said, a resurrection of a beast versus a resurrection of the witnesses or things like that. Okay? So, um, if you look here uh, in chapter 11 and 13, you can just kind of see some of those uh, type of things. Uh, the white one here, beast comes out of the abyss in chapter 11, and he does so to make war and overcome the saints. In chapter 13, the beast comes out of the sea, and another one comes out of the earth. And they're going after the saints. Uh, in the brown, the next one, in chapter 11, there are 24 elders that worship and fall down saying, we give you thanks. But in chapter 13, the worship is of the dragon, praising him rather than God. In chapter 11, uh, the court is given to the Gentiles to tread on the holy city for 42 months. In chapter 13, we see they're granted him to make war with the saints and to overcome. Part of that is the trampling that's going on, <clears throat> that causes the war. Chapter 11 in green, fire from the mouth to devour uh, these two witnesses. If somebody tries to kill them, fire comes out of their mouth and devours whoever tries to kill them. Well, in chapter 13, what does the beast, this antichrist figure do? Great signs. He calls fire down from heaven. He gives breath uh, to an image to speak. So these great miraculous things going on. Then in uh, yellow, the witnesses rise after three and a half days. And then the beast is wounded but rises, as I mentioned before. Uh, then we see in purple, if anyone harms the two witnesses, they die in that like manner. In chapter 13, he says, he who kills by the sword must be killed in like manner. Killed by the sword. So those are some of the things here. The last one, uh, I don't, I'm not going to really do anything outside to show you the focal point coming to chapter 12 and we will talk more about that when we get to it so that is a chiastic structure i had to kind of give you that because i think it's an important foundation we'll give you some other foundations as we go but for now that should cover that when we look at the garden of eden i want you to understand that that is a picture of paradise the paradise to come. And we're not going to look at every detail here tonight, but there are a lot of connections, and we'll look at some of them coming up. But before we look at that, I want you to see different views of how people interpret the book of Revelation. I'm going to look at four main ones. There's the preterists. Now, the preterists are going to say that the book of Revelation has no connection to the Old Testament, really. It's more about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And this is why it's important, as I said, that you know when the book of Revelation was written, because if it happened before 70 A.D., it gives this view credibility. They will refer to Babylon as Israel, again, because it's going to, usually they're anti-Semitic. The church has replaced Israel, and therefore Israel is evil, bad. Those who curse Israel will be cursed is a, no longer uh, a promise of God. That has been fulfilled, annulled, whatever. 
There's a historicist view, which is spelled wrong, I think. That sure looks weird if it's not. Yeah, yeah. But they say that the book of Revelation only applies to the Western church. And so what's going on in current events right now are being fulfilled prophetically by the book of Revelation, you may say. Okay. What I want you to know is all four views, the two that we've looked at so far and the two I'm going to show you, are all right. I agree with every one of them. I just don't accept all of any of them. And this is the problem, and I think where people get themselves into trouble, because I'm going to show you things that will make it sound like, wow, 70 AD did fulfill it. I also, in the handout that I gave you, will show you, you can look at all of history from Christ's ascension to the present, and you can see that revelation has almost all been fulfilled. I mean, to the T of the days, like 42 and a half months and all of these kind of things happening. I'm not going to go into detail with that tonight. But on your handout, you can look at that. And I just did a nutshell summary of how they will explain the book of Revelation throughout history. The Catholic Church, the, the Turks coming in, all of that. And it fits. And they'll, they'll tie in things like, for example... The blood, we're going to read about the blood as, uh, well, there are two things there with blood. As high as the horse's bridle, as well as the blood, the rivers turn to blood. And you think, when in history did that happen? Well, they will interpret that by quoting historians that will talk about these battles, this certain tribe, when the, they were fighting the Romans, they would draw them into the river. When they got into the river, they would attack. And so that the rivers flowed with blood. So that fulfilled it. Okay. I think that those are, as I've talked about many times outside of Revelation, that when God makes a prophecy, there are many prophecies that all point to the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. John the Baptist. You know, I grew up in a church that said that John the Baptist was Elijah. So the two witnesses, you know, that we're going to read about in Revelation 11, John the Baptist fulfilled that. He fulfilled Malachi because Malachi, the Old Testament, ends saying before the great and dreadful day of the Lord happens that Elijah would come. They'll say that was John the Baptist because when we go to the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, they're up on the mountain, and his disciples asked Jesus, why do the scribes and the Pharisees say that Elijah must come first? And what does Jesus say? I tell you, Elijah has come. And then he goes on, and they realize he was talking about John the Baptist. See, Elijah has come. But they stop right there, and we think, oh, it's fulfilled, one and done. Doesn't work that way. Because what Jesus says is, I tell you the truth, Elijah has come. But Elijah will come. You see, there's a dual prophecy there. John the Baptist was a picture of what Elijah was going to do. But Elijah is coming back. There is a future and a present tense, or past tense, I should say, of what Jesus says there. Likewise, we can look at the Antichrist. There have been... Pharaoh is a perfect picture of the Antichrist. Titus, a perfect picture. Antiochus Epiphanes, where we get uh, Hanukkah and the Maccabean revolt from. Perfect picture of the Antichrist. Honestly, Hitler, perfect picture of the Antichrist and many others throughout history. But that's not a fulfillment. Those are all patterns that we see throughout history. And so that's why I say that a preterist view is not entirely wrong. It's just not complete. But to say it's a one and done, you're missing the boat. But you can't throw it out either. The futurist view, or the historist, historic view, you, you can't say it's just all about today, that it didn't have anything to do with the past and the people living at the time of Christ, and it only applies to us now in this part of the world. No. Are there patterns that are there? Absolutely. 
You also have the futurist view. They take it literally and chronologically. I like that. I think that that's pretty much the way it is. But they say it's only applicable for those that are living in the end times. I disagree with that. So, again, a lot of good, but I think it applied to those in the time of John as well. Because we see Nero was a type of Antichrist, and they saw that. And because they saw that, it, it directed their steps and their thoughts and how they lived their life. That's what Revelation, to me, one of the greatest benefits of is to keep you prepared. That, as we said here earlier, those ten virgins, the ten virgins who aren't prepared. Life is good, there's no problems, no expectation of the Lord coming back, so you kind of fall asleep. You know, when COVID first hit, there were a lot of people thinking this could be the end, myself included. I didn't know. But it does put kind of a check in your spirit. And then what I saw is a lot of people starting to fall off again. The point of revelation throughout all times is don't let you fall off to always have that, that attitude of, I better be ready. I better be ready. And that's a good thing. It keeps you from becoming worldly. It keeps you from becoming one of those ten virgins who does not have oil in their lamps. <coughs> um, the idealists, they basically say it is completely symbolic. And they'll symbolize everything away. I just... Again, there's truth to it. Absolutely. There's a symbol there. I have a wedding ring on. It is a literal ring, but symbolic of marriage. Likewise, there are going to be trumpets that are going to be blowing from the sky, and that is literal. People say, oh, come on. Trumpet, uh, no, that's, that's crazy. It is crazy, but it's happening. It will happen. It did happen in the past. Remember Mount Sinai? There were trumpets blowing off of Mount Sinai and it was scaring the, the Israelites half to death so that they were like, uh, don't let them speak to us anymore. You speak to us, Moses. Right? Was that just symbols going on that was scaring them to death? No, that was literal. Are there symbolic pictures? Absolutely. And so, like I said, I'm not subscribing to any one of these views. I'm subscribing to all of them in part. So, Revelation is not going to stand alone. It is going to absolutely be dependent on the Old Testament. Just like the foundational understanding is Scripture interprets Scripture. And if you can't use the Scriptures to interpret it, and you're only going to use history to interpret it, you're in trouble. And a preterist view primarily uses nothing but history to interpret the book of Revelation. That's a scary thing. You cannot let history interpret Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Eventually, it will be fulfilled. So I'm not saying throw out all history. But if that's your, your main foundation, you're in trouble. Um, let's see. The way I like to look at... This is, if you kind of think of, if when John, like in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, any of those guys, prior to Revelation, when they would quote the Old Testament, in a Jewish mind, you have to remember that they didn't have chapter verses and, and you know, things marked out like that. So when you took their mind back to that, they weren't just thinking about that verse. They were thinking about the context of the whole story related around that verse. So, we don't think that way. We kind of like to just look at the verse. But they had the big picture. And I was trying to think of an analogy, and my analogies are awful all the time. So, uh, forgive me on this. But it would be kind of like me saying, remember when we went to the baseball game? When I said that, you would go, oh, yeah, we had hot dogs. We, we caught the pop fly. You know, we got to get this guy's autograph. We, all of these memories would go with it. That's the Jewish way of thinking. 
We like to think more like, uh, you know, remember when, remember when we saw Babe Ruth? That, I think we'd be, most of us would be a little older, I guess, but... Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> taking you to a specific moment. This is the way the book of Revelation is going to be, is when it takes you back to those things, it isn't just one specific verse. It's the whole context of that verse that it wants to take you back into. Okay? So, largely, it's going to put the Old Testament into one big picture so that Rather than taking these little pieces and looking at each puzzle piece, trying to figure out what they mean, the book of Revelation has taken the entire Old Testament almost, and it puts it together into a, a visual that I think is going to be understandable. I truly don't think that Revelation is that hard to understand. I'm not claiming that I have it all down, but a general view of what's happening I don't think is that difficult. Maybe when we're done, you'll disagree with me. But I don't think it is. There is order. I do believe it is chronological. And it's already been written. So we're just kind of putting those pieces together to see the big picture. I want to go back to just a few of the patterns as well that you're going to see just to show you the, the patterns that are in it. One of them are the sevens. You will have 54 sets of sevens. I'm not going to, I don't have all of them up here, but you see things like seven churches, seven spirits, seven candlesticks, lamps, stars, seals, horns, eyes, angels, trumpets, seven thousands, heads, thunders, crowns, plagues, mountains, divisions of letters, kings to the churches there, kings, beatitudes, judgments, seven I am's. Uh, John's gospel has also seven I am's too. Seven songs and benedictions, things like that. Seven, again, if we take kind of more of that symbolic approach to Scripture, is a number of completeness. I agree. But he uses that to do literal judgments at times, to show it's complete, and so on. You will have 32 different names of Christ just in the book of Revelation alone. Here are just a few of them. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over kings, the alpha, the omega... Uh, who is and who, who was, who is to come. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, Almighty, the Son of Man, the first and the last. Boy, I'm seeing a lot of them here. The living one. <laughs> I must have had too much to drink when I was typing this one out. <laughs> of course and last. <laughs> anyway. So, just some neat, neat little tidbits about it. Now, let's get to the Eden connections. A big theme, and this is just God is a, a God of symbolism. The Garden of Eden was a model of heaven. The tabernacle was a model of heaven. Revelation is in some sense a restoration of heaven on earth. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. What do you think the new earth is going to be like? I think it's going to be like the Garden of Eden. In, go ahead. When you say Eden was a model of heaven, do you, um, do you not think Eden was heaven? No. I think it, God knew that that was temporary. Because it's just like Ephesians says, that's a good question, that even before the creation of the world, he chose you. He knew that Adam and Eve were going to fall. He had the gospel laid out prior to that. Um, there are some differences between the garden and heaven. One of them being in the garden, you had the ability to sin. In heaven, you will have no ability to sin. I think that that is gone. Does that mean we have any free will? I, I think we do, but I just think you will not have an ability to sin. Again, that was before. At that point, that will all be gone. There will be no tears, no suffering. I mean, the garden didn't have that either, but 
but you had the ability to, probably mainly because Satan was allowed at that point to do that. But heaven, there's going to be a separation where the darkness and the light will be separated. So in Eden, there was evening and there was morning. In Revelation, there is no evening. So there are some differences that are vital. So, some comparisons though. There is gold in the new city, the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven in Revelation 21. The Garden of Eden was filled with gold too. There was a river that flows from the throne in Revelation as there was a river that flowed from the center of the garden, which seems to be the throne of God there in Genesis. In both, there is the tree of life. People always say, you know, what happened to the tree of life? I think God took it to heaven. But you also have to realize, I don't think we're just dealing with a physical wood tree here either. I think it was a physical wood tree, but more than that. I kind of think it was Jesus in a sense. Just like the rock that followed them throughout the desert was Jesus. Right? And when you read in the Talmud, it's interesting because they talk about there was a rock that followed them through the desert to give them water. And you think that's nuts, but that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, that they all drank from the same spiritual rock and ate the same spiritual food but that accompanied them throughout their wanderings there. Yeah, and it says, and that rock was Christ. So I don't, I, I can't make sense of that. I mean, my mind doesn't go there, but I believe it. And I think the tree of life is similar. And so <clears throat> at the most, we know that in the Garden of Eden, we had the cherub placed at the gate. There was only one gate into the Garden of Eden. They didn't have to have cherubs all over the place. The tabernacle had one gate. Heaven has one gate, Jesus. You can't get into heaven through Allah or Mary or Buddha or being good enough or any other way. There is only one way to heaven. Jesus says, I am the door. Yeah. What's that? That's in the city, but not to get into heaven. Yeah, yeah. Even if that tree of life, that, that the cherub were put there to guard so that they could not get in, it seems that that cherub was there until Noah's flood. There was a testimony against them all those times. I can just see little kids kind of running up, you know, crawling up the hill to see if that cherub's there, you know, and oh, there he is, there he is, run, run. You know, it's just a weird thought to think about, but it it seems that it was there until the flood, but the flood destroyed everything. Garden of Eden was destroyed. So when we think about the Garden of Eden, people today think, well, it was over in this part of the world. Well, there's no way you can tell. Noah's flood destroyed the world. It's all new. Yes, we have the Tigris and the Euphrates River, but they were just renamed after the time of the flood and wouldn't be the same rivers. Anyway... We see that tree of life is there in Revelation as well. And we see in both the Garden of Eden and in uh, Revelation that the garden was specially prepared for man. Remember, the garden was not just like sometimes we have an idea of the Garden of Eden is the world. No, it was a garden of Eden. It was this little area and it was specially prepared for man. I don't know if they were going to live in there constantly, if they could come and go, you know, eat before the fall. And, you know, it was still beautiful out. I would assume so. I would assume all of the earth was perfect. Okay. But nonetheless, this specific area was prepared for man. In Revelation, the New Jerusalem is specifically prepared for man. Uh, It was a type of paradise with no sin, 
The city is a paradise with no sin. God walked with man in the garden. God's going to walk with you in the new city. And so, in essence, we are waiting for Eden to be restored. And so you wonder, oh, what must have been like? I think someday you're going to find out. Because the new earth, when it talks about the lion laying down with the lamb and all of that, I think that's very literal. That we will see those kind of things going on. There will just will be no harm. No weeds, no curse. Uh, just getting to pick the, the, the produce. Uh, it'll be wonderful. One kind of other connection that I want you to see here that I find interesting. In Genesis chapter 2, it says this, The name of the first river is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Notice there are three things that are mentioned here in the, the garden, basically. Gold, resin, onyx. And I, I shouldn't say garden because here it says the land. The land of Eden. So those three articles, I want to focus on them. First, we're going to look at onyx. In Exodus chapter 28, this is the very next time we're going to see this word used. So to Genesis to here, we never see that word again. It says about the priests and their garments to fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones of the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. So they were to take onyx stones, put them in the breastplate of the priest, and they were to be memorial stones. A memorial of what? Well, in some ways, the tribes of Israel. But it seems to be more than that, especially since there's kind of the law of first use. When you see a word that's used to understand what it means, you go to where it was first used the first time. And that onyx stone is interesting because, as I said, you see it in the Garden of Eden here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 11 that we just read. Well, when we get to Numbers, we see the manna that came down from heaven that the Israelites were eating. It says that it looked like coriander seed and like resin. That word resin is betelach. That is another unique word here. So, in Exodus 16, it says the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed, just like we saw there in Numbers. But then it says, and tasted like wafers made with honey. The Hebrew word there that's used in Exodus 16 is betelach, the same thing for resin. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, the manna was white like coriander seed, but it says specifically white, even in the Hebrew, but it looks like resin, so white resin. That seems to indicate then that in Genesis, that that was also white. The reason that is important is because you now have a white stone that is a memorial of Israel, that is to be worn over the heart of the priest, which is a picture of the Holy One, a picture of God, our great high priest. So he always has this white stone over his heart to remember Israel. Not only was it to remind the Israelites as they wore this of the Garden of Eden, take them to heaven, their heavenly home in their mind, but... We read here in Revelation 2.17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. Again, connecting that manna and the white. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So it seems possibly to be pointing them, look, remember your Edenic paradise? And in Revelation, it's going to be fulfilled. 
Genesis 2, again, looking at the gold. We kind of talked about that one. The temple was covered in gold, you know, at least on the inside and parts. We know that uh, Revelation, we're seeing gold streets. You'll see that. And in Genesis, there was gold in the land. So gold, purity, preciousness is always going to be there. We'll talk about this later too, but gold in its purest form, did you know that like it's actually translucent, you can see through it, or transparent? The astronauts had a thin gold layer over their visors to protect them from radiation and whatnot. So pure, pureness. So all three of these things are kind of connecting us to Revelation, to Eden. We have here in Isaiah 60, verse 6, 9, Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Or in verse 9, Surely the islands look to me, and in the leader, the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Bringing gold to God. Isaiah 54, O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with sapphires. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. So we know that, as I said, the temple foreshadowed heaven. Hebrews 8.5 says that they served as a sanctuary that is a copy of what is in heaven. So as we see in the clothing of the high priest, it should be of no surprise then that we have many Old Testament passages mentioning these precious stones, all of them foreshadowing salvation. Purity, that kind of thing. And maybe that's why Revelation describes our paradise this way. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, then chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, carnelian, chrysolite, Beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, jacinth, amethyst. The twelfth gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. And the great, great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I mean, my mind just doesn't even allow me hardly to imagine this. But this is why we see these precious stones in the tabernacle, in the priest, in the Garden of Eden, being brought to God, that's the symbol of the literal that takes place here. We also know the priest was to wear fine linen clothing. What do we wear when we get to heaven? Revelation 19 says, you will be given a white robe which stands for the righteous acts of the saints. I think you will have a literal white robe that symbolically stands for your righteousness. You know, it used to be when a, a bride got married, if she had been pure, she wore white. It doesn't mean anything today, but it used to mean something, right? Another interesting aspect is <clears throat> part of the curse I love this part of Genesis when you compare Genesis to Jesus and what all happened there in the fall. We know that Jesus, well, first, at the fall, we see that there would be thorns that would now come from the ground. That you have to work the ground by the sweat of your brow, and you will die. You will go through great pain in childbearing, too, but... What's interesting is that Jesus, when he comes, he, he takes that curse on himself for you. The crown of thorns, that was a picture of the curse. That was a literal crown, symbolic of the curse that he was going to take for you. 
He sweat blood for you. He died for you. And you could say in some senses that it was through great pain that he gave birth to Israel and to those who would believe on his name. But nonetheless, he was taking the curse on himself. I want to show you this aspect of the curse here in the temple as well. We know in heaven there will be no tear. There will be no sweat. Like I said, it's going to be restored. In Revelation 19, we see that you're given that fine linen to wear. But look in Genesis 3. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, to dust you will return. Part of that curse is sweat. So in Ezekiel chapter 44, which by the way, Ezekiel 40 through 48 is talking about this new temple that's around. But it says this, they are to wear linen turbans on their heads and linen undergarments around their waists. Again, just like the fine linen. They must not wear anything that makes them sweat, perspire. Why? Well, because that's part of the curse. And this is a picture of getting rid of the curse altogether. So that's why the priests weren't to wear things that made them sweat. That's a picture of the curse. And you're supposed to be a holy man. That's what it's pointing to. Um, when that curse is wiped away in heaven, we aren't just a model of the redeemed man. We are the redeemed man with no curse on us at all. So there will be no sweating in heaven. Yeah. <coughs> on the, the priest's chest, he had a gold plate engraved with words, holy to the Lord on it. Exodus 28, 36 talks about that. Again, showing a symbolic removal of the curse upon the priest that he was holy. Um, his breastplate had gold and precious stones. We already talked about that. Also a picture of holiness and purity. We have other pictures of what Revelation is going to show us with uh, the vines and the vegetation in the Garden of Eden. It talks about its lush vegetation. Even when Abraham was going to Sodom and Gomorrah, they remembered that he reminded them of the garden of God. It was so lush. Well, this is a picture of blessing and prosperity from God. In 1 Kings 4.25, it uses this terminology to show that blessing. It says, During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel from Dan to Beersheba lived in safety, each under his own vine and fig tree. So a picture of that. We see in Micah 4, Likewise, our heavenly home is going to have that type of blessing. It says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree. In the time of Solomon, even that was a type. Solomon is a Christ figure, so is David. We see even that time period of this king that is so wise, wiser than anybody ever was or would be, is a picture of, of God. It's, a, it's all pointing to this. It's not a perfect that is coming in the future. Zechariah 3.10, In that day each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree declares the Lord Almighty. And so these are symbols that we see of what we have to look forward to. Um, when we were in Israel, Ron was talking about this too. You might remember when Nathaniel, when Jesus, Nathaniel meets Jesus, his brother goes to him, he says, hey, come and see, we have found the Messiah. You know, the one the law and the prophets talk, talked about. You know, the son of Joseph. And he's like, Nazareth? How, nothing good comes from Nazareth. He says, well, come and see. Well, he was under a fig tree while this was happening. You see, in a Jewish mind, 
when they hear fig tree, they're not thinking a literal fig tree only. They're thinking the blessings and prosperity of God. Even to this day, they use that phrase as a time, a place of prayer to go under the fig tree. It's to go pray. So, when he meets Jesus, or, you know, Nathaniel does, Jesus sees him coming, and he says, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And he says, how do you know me? And he says, I saw you while you were still yet under the fig tree. And then Nathaniel like, whoa, you are the son of God. I mean, just because he said, I saw you before you, no. He was praying under that fig tree, saying something. He knew and there was a connection there. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is the symbols that we're seeing. Again, is there a little fig tree? Absolutely there is. But it's symbolically used to teach us something as well. Um last one here tonight. <coughs> He who is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Okay, he talks, the, the godly are referred to as trees planted by waters. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves do not wither. They're always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. Never fails to bear fruit. Don't just think about a tree. That, he's talking about us. When heat comes, you don't need to fear. When there's a drought, it's okay. It's okay because God is with you. You are connected to Him, the living waters, and He will cause you to bear fruit. Isaiah 27, in the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. You know what's interesting? They do produce a massive amount of fruit for the world today, literally. Let alone spiritually. I mean, Israel is an amazing nation. I, I could talk all night just about that. In how many Nobel prizes have come from Jewish people, how this little tiny nation has affected the world in so many ways is absolutely remarkable. But another time, Exodus 37, even the lampstand in the temple was described as a tree with branches, and yet it was pure gold. The cedar walls in the temple were a model of heaven as well, the temple, right? It was carved with flowers, palm trees, pomegranates, covered in gold. That's why the temple had those things in it, because these are pictures of flourishing by the living waters. So we could go on and on making comparisons, but I think that's going to suffice to show you as we get into Revelation uh, the kind of thing that we, we see here symbolically. It's not just Revelation. It's throughout the whole Bible. This, when we study Revelation, it was pointing us to that. And so we ought to get excited for to get into this. Like I said, this is not my favorite part. I, I hate that first lesson of a Bible study because you lay these foundations, but I think there's good stuff in it anyway. Next week, we are going to jump into chapter 1, and we will get started in the book itself. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, though, is why does God use such symbolism? And I think there's two things. Number one, do you remember that the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And he said, otherwise, they will hear and they'll see, right? They're going to understand. He says, I, I'm, I'm speaking in parables because it's for you. It's for those who I'm going to give an understanding of, those who want to know. And that's why I say Revelation, honestly, guys, it's not going to be that difficult to understand if you really want to know. Fact is, most people just don't study it. 
And therefore, it will remain a hidden mystery because you don't study it. But when you do, he's going to reveal it to you. The other reason I think he speaks in such prophetic language is because it is timeless that way. It never changes. It is, you know, our culture changes all the time. But when you speak in this language, it will never, never go out of date, in essence. Um, we're going to see the same imagery in Daniel, as well as in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zechariah, just about all of them, that you will see in the book of Revelation. And it's untainted by time. All of those things. You'll, you'll see it as we go. In Revelation chapter 22, God tells John not to seal up the words of this book. You contrast that to Daniel chapter 12. He says, Daniel, seal up the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many are going to go to and fro, increasing in knowledge, but the end is not yet. Seal it up. I personally think that there's a good chance that what we see Daniel, what had been closed up for the last 3,000 years or whatever it was since Daniel, when Revelation, when that scroll is undone, I think we're starting to see what Daniel was told not to speak of. And we're going to get to see it. Kind of cool. So, uh, we will get into chapter 1 next week. With that, remember your outline. That first page is going to be very important. And we will follow that. If you keep that, it's going to help you keep in your mind what's going on. Because it's going to seem simple. But then as you keep piling things on, you begin to think, Oh, okay, what was that? The seal? Was that the trumpet? What was that? And just having that little first page outline is going to help you keep the order of things very nice and neat. So uh, next week we'll get into it. I'm excited to get started in this book. I know you're going to be blessed. As a matter of fact, I can promise you that one. You know how I can do that? Because Revelation promises it. It's, a, it's the only book of the Bible that gives you a blessing for studying it. And so you will be blessed. Guaranteed. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for your word. And we just ask that as we dive into this book that you would prepare us, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that uh, it would be clear to us and that it would cause us to light our wood on fire, that we would not go through this world sleeping or complacent but that we would rather get excited about your word and excited about following you and just be ready to surrender all to you. That this is not a book that is one of fear and, and doom and gloom, but rather this is a book of hope, a book of promises and glory and something that we look forward to, not that we dread. So help us to see it the way it's meant to be seen for those who are overcomers. So we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.